All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Monday evening, February 26th, last full week of February. We had a little time off from recording recently, but uh, actually not because I was traveling. It's because you were globetrotting the world. How, uh, how was your trip? Where did you go? It was great. I was over in France just for a whirlwind four-day trip. My sister has been over there with her husband and my new nephew for a few months. And so I went over there with my family and with Katie to visit. And it was great. It was jam-packed. But we got to do some exploring in the like towns in the Loire Valley. So there was some like really cool history around that uh, like these chateaus that the french royals used to live in over centuries really and so very very cool to see that part of one town we were walking through and it, it felt very much like out of beauty and the beast where i was like is bell just running around down there like it was it just was gave those vibes and then we did mont saint michel which was like a place i had heard of but didn't really know too much about but which is like an island church fortress that was really cool. The church was first founded there, I think, in like seventeen in seven oh four, and the current structure had been there for over for almost a thousand years. It's a, it's a, now both a military fortress and a, the classic church, but there's like a full town that still is is there. So that was really cool to see. And then the crown jewel of the trip was we spent a, a full twenty four hours in Normandy and got to see all of Omaha Beach and Utah Beach and the United States Cemetery over there and some other kind of local spots where significant events um, around D-Day and the aftermath of D-Day happened. So for a history nerd like me, it was an incredible experience, super moving. Um, I would highly recommend really for any anybody ever to, to go there. I, I think it's, it's worth the trip, but certainly for Americans, like I said, for people that are interested in in history, um, it's it was uh, it was powerful and like definitely it moved me. Whether like it was chills or almost to tears at different points, seeing some of the whether it was the beaches or the like the cemetery. If anybody's ever been to Arlington, it's a little bit like that, except instead of like the the graves, there were all crosses, and I think there are twenty thousand plus. American crosses there and you there's like a reflecting pool almost like on the Washington Mall there's a memorial that looks like the World War II memorial um, so it was that that was even better than I expected and it's so the stuff is like really well preserved I and mean, that's sometimes you forget it's only like 80 years ago but like you still see on like on the cliffs of Omaha and Utah beaches you still see like the craters where the the allied military were like dropping the bombs in preparation for the assault and so like that's you can still see like the indents in the earth which is it's crazy some of the bunk the german bunkers that they use are still there preserved um, and then it, it was also just kind of uh 
for lack of a better word, like this, it, it like it was tricky mentally because you see this beach, Omaha Beach, is four and a half miles, and it's a beautiful, gorgeous beach on the coast of France, and people, it's like a it's a beach town in some ways. People go there, not in February, but like you go there and you just enjoy the beach like you would here in Massachusetts or you know east west coast of the United States, but you have this memorial where you know commemorating the fact that thousands of people died on this very beach and so like that that was kind of tricky to wrap your mind around all of that but overall um a wonderful trip a terrific opportunity super thankful that i got to do it kind of a cool and just important place for really anybody to to visit um sort of the site of our last world war i remember our high school teacher mr ward when he was describing his I think first and perhaps only trip to Normandy that he was moved to tears. Just you start to see that the number of graves and start yeah. to imagine all these kids, 18 right. to 22 right. um, is uh awe inspiring is not the right word, but you maybe get a little bit, a better appreciation of the magnitude of what happened there. And also of like the choices of leaders in, in any of these places it's actually perhaps fitting for what we are talking about today yeah absolutely and I, I do feel like part of my conversation today is going to be influenced by some of my thoughts and feelings coming back from this trip but it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine reaches two-year anniversary this past weekend and not only did we feel like it was right to kind of circle back to this conflict after now that it's been two years on this anniversary, but there's certainly been a number of things in the news over the past few weeks about Ukraine that this felt especially relevant. So whether it was the tragic death of Alexei Navalny, who was the the chief opposition leader of um, Vladimir Putin in, in Russia last week, or the news that Russia potentially was in the process of or had developed an anti-satellite nuclear weapon for space, or even the the Ukraine the, the status of the Ukraine aid here in the United States, which we talked about in the context of immigration a few weeks ago, like that that kind of big bill that had both the border security and the foreign aid to the to Ukraine, Israel, and, and Taiwan wrapped in it. We talked about it in the context of it failed because of the border policies, but because of that. The Ukraine aid is still stalled. The, the the aid that President Biden has been asking for is still stalled, really, in the House of Representatives. So, uh, for all of these reasons, uh, this this conflict, like I said, has been going on for two years, and we talked about it extensively in the lead up to it and when it first happened. It, and it's peppered our conversations in the last two years. But we're going to develop devote a whole episode to the conflict today and essentially try to engage in a mini debate about this and i am going to be playing the side of advocating for continued aid to ukraine and you'll be um, playing advocating the other side and advocating that we should not continue our our current uh, path with providing this aid to ukraine uh, and i guess i should clarify that Ricky and I, I think, are both somewhat, you know, amenable on these positions. You know, these are not positions that we're, we're locked into, but they're certainly the positions which we feel uh, more aligned with. And so I, I will present these arguments in more of a black and white, like, hey, I'm going to be presenting this is why we should do it. You're presenting why we should not do it. But I think there's, as always, huge gray area in between that 
you know, probably in, in real, in actuality, that would probably fall somewhere in between. But um, I'm happy to advocate for you continue to create aid today. Yeah, I, as as you said, these positions probably mirror um, where we're kind of naturally inclined to uh, to ally ourselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be 100% on board with these arguments. Sure. So excited to get into that. Before we do, a reminder to everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out online or on Instagram. Um, if you check them out and like what you see and, and want to purchase something, let them know the boys at uh, Gentlemen's Disagreement sent you. Um, and one more thing before we get into it, Ricky, this the last week of February is uh, my mom's birthday week. So an early happy birthday to my mom. I don't know. She'll listen to this at some point. So um, happy birthday, mom. Definitely. Big shout out to Mrs. Kelly. One of our biggest fans. Absolutely. Yeah. Perhaps our biggest. Yeah. All right. When we return, we'll, uh, we'll get into this debate. <laughs> Perhaps before we begin this debate, my... Uh, it's worth noting if you're hearing a crunching or a chewing in the background, that would be my dog whose timing is impeccable as always, um, has chosen now to eat her breakfast. Yeah. Uh, I feel like her timing has always been impeccable over the course of, of this podcast. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad that nothing's changed in that sense. Okay. So how we're going to do this is I'm going to give an opening statement, then Ricky will give an opening statement, then I will present my arguments in a longer form where he will do the same and then we'll open it up for kind of a, a more free-flowing back and forth responding to each other's points. So my arguments in favor of giving aid to Ukraine kind of fall under two main umbrellas here. First of all, that it's good for the United States to do it. And second of all, that it's good for the world that we do it. So good for the United States, I mean that I think continuing to aid Ukraine in their fight against Russia, I think it's good for the United States militarily. I think it's good for our allies, particularly our NATO allies. I think it's good for the United States economy. And um, I think it's good for our defense readiness. The second major reason why I think the United States continuing to fund Ukraine's efforts is good is because I believe it's good for the world. So I think that for the sake of democracy, you know, lower kind of capital D democracy, this, this idea of, of of freedom and all, all of the things that democracy stands for, that it's good for the world to stand up to anti-democratic forces. I think historically, we know that appeasement of dictators, of, of invaders does not work. And so it's better to try to address it at the forefront as opposed to trying to come in later after you've appeased someone like uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think when you look at the development of the like the space nuclear weapon that I, I mentioned earlier, this shows kind of what Russia is capable of, uh, the global potential disruption and uh, destruction. So I think it's good for the world that the United States continues to combat that. Uh, and then I, th I think this idea of peace through strength and deterrence, it matters and it matters, this is kind of exhibit A for other countries in the world who are looking at the United States' reaction to what Russia has done and perhaps gauging the United States' willingness to engage in deterrence 
in future conflicts. So I think it's important to to establish a standard that we will stand up to dictators, to countries that want to um, invade their weaker neighbors. Those are those are my main arguments. I don't know that I have as well prepared an opening statement, but I will say that I think my main argument is that continuing to provide funds for Ukraine is the same as continuing our kind of posturing posture of foreign policy that has basically been a money pit for the United States and really hasn't delivered the kinds of either military gains or sort of proliferation of democracy, sort of moral gains that we want to believe that it does or that it can do. Um, I think in general, the main point that frustrates me the most is that military aid for Ukraine is primarily being focused on American terms and American gains and not necessarily any tangible benefits for Ukraine. And I can get into why I don't think that this amount of money is substantial enough to actually change the tide of the war and prolonging the war, I think, will be more destructive to the country, um, as it has already wrought significant amounts of destruction. And then I think that this kind of foreign policy that we have sort of adhered to post-World War II has been set on a few premises that I think deserve some re-examination. And I, well, clearly I think I'm saying it. (laughs) But uh, I will argue that if we are truly serious about promoting democracy and about um, promoting kind of American values, then we would think of other ways of spending this money. Okay. So those are the opening statements. I will now go into a a lengthier description of my arguments uh, before ceding the floor to Ricky, and then we'll kind of respond to each other. So my first big umbrella was that this is good for the United States. And I, I started that by saying I think this is good for the United States militarily. It would be hard to argue that Russia isn't one of the United States' biggest rivals would probably be a kind word, but enemies is is probably a closer depiction uh, or more apt description of of what Russia is at this point. While China's military is probably stronger than Russia's at this point, the United States and China have never really engaged in serious military conflict in in the way that Russia has. So if if we acknowledge that Russia is a a serious threat to United States and its allies militarily, then weakening Russia's military through this, this bloody conflict in Ukraine is beneficial for the United States. So by, by the United States estimates, Russia's have, has lost 315,000 soldiers in, in these two years, which, to put it in context, is more than the United States lost in all of World War I and is rapidly approaching the amount of uh, soldiers that the United States lost in World War II, which was uh, the 
bloodiest international conflict the United States has been in over the course of four years for the United States and over two fronts, Russia has lost almost that many troops in two years in one front. Um, in addition to that, they've had to spend enormous sums of money on their, their military, um, which while we can get into like their their economy hasn't quite suffered as much under sanctions as perhaps the United States and uh, the European Union hoped that it would, it's probably set Russia back in the future economically. Uh, they've lost, by some estimates, over a million young men who have fled the country to avoid being drafted uh, into the army. And so that's going to lead to shortages of able workers in the future. It's going to lead likely to a brain drain in the country. Uh, and while, again, they've been able to skirt the United States sanctions in some ways, what it's led to is a that they can't buy a lot of the like technologically advanced um, products from the Europe from the West, from the European Union, the United States, like it has been in the past. So it's it's hurting them technologically in the future. And while Russia's economy has been able to survive largely because it's been propped up by defense spending, um, I, I, I've read that Russian dis defense spending is now making up 28% of uh, the entire Russian economy, which is more than double uh, the United States is how much the United States spends relative to its overall GDP. Uh, and so like the only reason that Russia's economy is being propped up right now is because the government is spending just obscene amounts of money on, on their on their military to allow the, the, the economy not to completely fall apart. So anyway, th that's all to say that weakening Russia is good for the United States. My next point why it's good for the United States is that it's good to address this now as opposed to having to address it in the future. Vladimir Putin has made clear from the start of the war and did it again in his interview with Tucker Carlson just a few weeks ago that he views Ukraine as part of Russia, as naturally he believes that Ukraine was a, originally a part of Russia for, he makes the case for over a thousand years. And he, oh, all he's doing in, in his telling of, of this narrative is that he's reclaiming Russian lands. He's made no secret that he wants to, that he, he felt like the fall of the Soviet Union was the worst thing to happen in the, in the 20th century and that he wants to kind of restore the Soviet Union to its former glory. While we can say that it's like fear-mongering that to argue that Putin's not going to stop at Ukraine, that he's going to go to other places, I'm not so, so sure that that's unrealistic. When he took Crimea in Ukraine in 2014, you know, President Obama and, and allies pretty much didn't respond to it. And I would argue it was like a version of appeasement there where we said, well, if, if we just kind of let him have this, he's not going to go any further. Well, now he's invaded Ukraine. And if he conquers Ukraine and reclaims it for Russia, as he claims is like naturally right, well, there are certainly many other former Soviet republics that exist. And like those countries include Armenia and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, but they also include NATO countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Everyone knows under Article 5 of the NATO treaty that if a NATO ally is attacked, all of the, the NATO allies view that as attack on themselves and are bound by this treaty to respond. So whether it's Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, or it's Poland, if, if Putin is able to continue to go forth with his plan to re reimagine, to unite again the former Soviet Union, this could force the United States' hand in the future in a way that would be far more expensive both in terms of money and also 
unfortunately, in terms of lives. So it would be better to try to address and stop Russia now than to let them continue on this path. Also, why it's good for the U.S. economy, which you, I think you kind of alluded to in, in your opening statement. I think a misnomer of all, all of this money is that it's like we're just sending all of this money over to Ukraine. The vast majority of the money is actually being spent here in the United States. Something close to two-thirds of this Ukraine aid is being spent here with the American defense firms to produce weapons that we then send to Ukraine. So President Biden at one point says that you know, he's making the, the case that it's spent in places like Arizona, where Patriot missiles are built, in Alabama, where the Javelin missiles are built, and Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Texas, which are the main states that produce artillery shells. So this is, in some ways, this money isn't like we're just not sending this taxpayer money halfway across the world and, hey, Ukraine, do what you want with it. We're actually spending this money here in the United States, in our cities and towns, that providing jobs to people and money to businesses in these local communities, often in communities like that that are industry-based in ways that they, we have fewer towns that are like this. So to prop up industry is probably a good thing for a lot of these communities. Uh, Finally, why it's good for the United States, good for defense readiness. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we there was lots of, of studies, the CSIS, which is the Center for Strategic, I should, I should have this tip of my tongue, uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies. They've been kind of sounding this alarm for years that the United States defense readiness is not where it needs to be, largely because it hasn't had to be. So they argue because of um, issues that were exacerbated by su- supply chain in the COVID pandemic, but also the fact that the United States hasn't really had to engage in a protracted conflict for a long time. And you could certainly argue, oh, well, we, what are you talking about? We were just in Afghanistan for 20 years. It wasn't really the same way where we were expending tons of um, missiles, munitions, artillery, like, artillery in, in, like we were in, say, a conflict in Vietnam or even Korea or certainly World War II. And so what we've the munitions we've sent Ukraine over the past two years have largely been drawn down from stockpiles. But that's concerning because that would potentially make the United States less ready in terms if the United States itself was involved in a conflict, but also showed that this lack of capacity to produce munitions on a, a large scale. So the fact in obviously from a business perspective that makes tons of sense that you don't want to be producing things that you don't know are going to be needed. You only produce things when you have contracts. So this this would argue that this is kind of kicking the United States in gear to say that we need to be planning for a potential future conflict with maybe a, a China or a North Korea or Iran. We don't know where that conflict would be, and hopefully it never comes, but we need to step up our preparation for the potential of one. So that's all why I think helping Ukraine would be good for the United States. You are doing an admirable job uh, keeping your tongue here, biting your tongue. I appreciate that. You'll have your chance to respond. My second big umbrella is why I think it's good for is the world. Is this how debates work? Don't you get like a two-minute timer? <laughs> What's going on here? I, I laid out the rules very clearly. <laughs> all right. So good for the world. Uh, like I said, uh, with this, this to start, that for... The better part of a century now, the United States has been this the leader of the free world. And we have pursued policies militarily, economically, um, to try to protect democracy. We, we did last week 
we drafted the most significant speeches in American history. And, and if you think one of the speeches we drafted was FDR's arsenal of democracy, right? That, that's, he, he is the one that coins this phrase and you correctly point out, what does that actually mean? Well, what it has meant for a long time is that we are going to supply and help countries who are democracies try to fend off invasions from countries that are not democracies, essentially. Uh, and... I would say another speech that we, we talked about at that time was uh, was JFK's, you, you drafted JFK's inaugural address, and while the most famous line from that speech is, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, the vast majority of that speech is dedicated to saying that, like, we will bear any burden, we will pay any price, to, that we, we will fight anywhere to protect democracy. So we have this from a clear line from, uh, you know, FDR to JFK through Bush, and as, as you have, we've talked about many times, that the Democratic presidents have largely, when we're talking about Clinton, Obama, Biden, have followed in the same path as like a Bush, Reagan, the Republicans, um, in terms of putting forth this foreign policy of we're going to defend democracies. Well, this is this is kind of a, a chance for us to do that. Uh, speaking of of that, this idea of peace through strength and deterrence, this is something that comes up Eisenhower through Reagan through. Biden now, and certainly someone like Nikki Haley is advocating for that on the Republican side, where when the rest of the world, when the dictators are looking around, the Xi Jinping's of the world, are, they're eyeing Taiwan. And they're looking at the US and the EU response and NATO response to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And if our response is weak or it's faltering or we say one thing but quickly get tired of our, our what we say that we're going to do, then that invites more attacks from dictators to invade their neighbors because they know that they are not going to be confronted with the most powerful countries in the world, the United States and the EU, actually having the, the desire, the ability, um, the kind of will to confront dictators who are willing to to destabilize the world order. And I would argue that that's destabilizing for the entire world. Russia has destabilized the world by invading Ukraine and not stepping to that invites further destabilization from other dictators. Uh, I guess like historically, we I talked about how appeasement has never worked, whether we talk about Neville Chamberlain in 1938 or even World War I in, in 1916 when um, we, we kind of said that like, hey, if we'll, we won't get involved, just don't do, don't cross X, like don't bomb our, our ships that are that are supplying the UK or we'll, we'll give you Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland, but don't invade Poland. And what inevitably what happens is strong men don't res respond to appeasement. It just emboldens them more. So continuing to allow Vladimir Putin to take parts of Ukraine and say, all right, we'll just stop there. That hasn't proven to work in the past. I don't think it's going to continue to work in the future. Uh, and finally, like this idea, like Alexei Navalny was killed just this past week. And this is just a further example of Russia being a pariah state, that they are, they are willing to openly murder the most famous, most prominent dissent, dissenter, opposition leader to Vladimir Putin and pretty much saying like, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. And Unfortunately, even though the Biden administration launched like 600 new sanctions last this past weekend on Russia, I think as I've alluded to many times, like that's that hasn't made the kind of impact that the United States and the EU hope that it would. The best way to actually hurt 
Vladimir Putin and to make him feel pain for what he's done, not only internationally, but in his own country in terms of this over, like suppressing. We know that there are thousands of political prisoners in Russia, including um, Evan Gersovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter. There's a, a British Russian uh, who's been detained there for a, a, a fair amount now. I should have that person's name. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll, I'll come up with that person's name. <laughs> and uh, essentially, th this is the way if you want to stand up for uh, Navalny's legacy and his, his memory, while sanctions are nice, the best way to do it is on the battlefield. So those are largely my arguments about why the United States continuing to aid Ukraine in this struggle is good for both our country and for the world. Where, where, where can I start my rebuttal? You're supposed to give your main arguments first. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. All right. So mine, again, my list is not going to be nearly as long, but I think it will have far few, far fewer, uh, premises that can be challenged. Um, primarily. So number one, the new round of aid that we're considering is somewhere between 50 to $60 billion. We've already spent about $50 billion in aid. Um, the idea that an additional $50 billion is all it's going to take to beat Russia is it's preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. Um, Russia spends roughly $85 billion a year on their military spending. You want to take a guess how much the U.S. spends? $900 billion. $900 billion. Okay, so 10x. Somehow, though, we should be afraid that we're not prepared to stand up to Russia at some point if and they like decide to then roll through Ukraine, get to Poland, take over Germany and France, who all, by the way, combined, combined their military budgets. We're talking close to $300 billion. So, again, 5x what Russia spends. Um, that all of a sudden we would be caught flat-footed if we don't nip this in the bud at Ukraine. So there's, I think, both uh, Russia can be easily defeated if we just throw another $50 billion, and then also, like, if they're not defeated today, tomorrow they're just going to be this behemoth that we can't deal with, which is sort of the, the underpinning arguments for why we should provide this aid and provide this aid now as if this aid is the aid that will end the aid, right? I think we have the history from places like Afghanistan where we spent, you know, close to $100 billion a year for 20 years and didn't get anywhere to suggest that maybe this is not going to be the most effectual course of action. Then there's kind of the idea that we can, that weakening Russia is really what we want to do. And I think you hearken back to World War One and World War Two, and to me, if you look at what happened to Germany after World War One, that would be the ticking time bomb that we would be trying to set off if we un undo their undo them kind of economically, and Putin will still potentially be at the head of this country that will ostensibly be forced to run their economy entirely off of military spending. Are we not? trying to create another version of Germany after World War One. I. I mean, that, and then a, a Germany which, you know, would have had the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So in terms of whether or not, whether somehow destabilizing Russia somehow makes us more safe, I think is an interesting 
concept, but I don't think it holds much water. And then it is really just like part and parcel for how American foreign policy has operated. I think this invocation of like Eisenhower in terms of what we have to do, Eisenhower, as you well know, is is the president who warned us of this kind of military industrial complex and how it takes over. Well, in order to sustain a $900 billion military budget, you have to continue to convince people that we have to spend this money on our defense because we have these big boogeymen that are out there in Russia and China. And this notion, I think, is being challenged domestically. Um, obviously, the Republican Party, because Donald Trump has taken up this uh, this mantle that that we don't need to be footing the bill for Europe anymore. Yeah, I never thought I'd be making these arguments. Um, but I, I mean, there is, I, I think, an an element of of truth to that that if we think that this benefits us economically because it's going to ramp up our military spending and we do a lot of that military spending at home, then uh, eventually we are we have to grapple with the fact that like the whole then the entire endeavor is to maintain this enemy because if Russia is no longer there then what are we spending on and if our entire you know if we have a huge chunk of our economy propping is propped up by our necessity for these global enemies then all of a sudden like where do we go where do those people go I think right Europe after World War II has had to grapple with this because they largely divested their militaries which is potentially this the other problem right which is that we feel like Europe is incapable of dealing with this on their own. And another argument, I don't, it feels weird to be making it because I'm not necessarily sure that I feel good about it, is that by continuing to provide this, these sums of aid to Ukraine, including weapons, including advanced weaponry, basically absolves Europe from the necessity to do it themselves and right Russia's economy is still very small relative to the rest of Europe it's probably about the size of Italy um, meaning that the likes of France Germany UK are all significantly bigger than Russia so if they now they don't have the same sort of nuclear capabilities but again if they if they are really feeling as if this Russian threat is enough to challenge democracy globally, you would think that they could mobilize a little bit and maybe our continued aid is handicapping them. Not that I'd like to think that is a more eloquent argument that <laughs> than the one that Donald Trump is making. Right. Unfortunately, it is yeah. very similar to what he is saying. But I think there's probably some truth to that, that really they have just not had to spend any money because we continue to spend the money and we basically say that we'll show up if there are any problems um and then i think really my main argument against continuing to to deliver military aid is that there is really no end game there is no clear way that we quote-unquote, win this war. And I think, A, we need to acknowledge that 
I mean, in, to some degree, Putin was right. He's always going to care more about Ukraine than we ever will. And if we think on the one hand that, well, this just tells Xi Jinping that if we don't care about Ukraine, we're not going to care about Taiwan. I mean, I think I think that, <laughs> A, it would be a mistake for him to co- for for anybody to say that what is happening in one country necessitates a reaction of a similar type in another country. I I just don't think that that's true, and and that again is 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 a like a premise that we are using for the foundation of this aid that we need to create this precedent that if you do X, we will do Y. Well, we can't. At some point, we can no longer, we cannot sustain that, and we have to recognize that in certain areas, we will have to figure out ways of promoting democracy that don't include using our military might. And I think that that is potentially my my summarizing point, which is, you know, the Soviet Union fell largely, you know, I think we would argue largely because capitalism allowed our economy to grow in a way that communism did not sustain theirs, right? In the places that we have gone to bring democracy, Afghanistan going back further to Vietnam, Korea, we haven't had the results from our military that we have in in ways that that you might have shown uh, you know to have occurred in the soviet union after um after after the fall of you know the wall so this idea that the only way that we can prevent autocrats from marching forward and taking over more and more land is through our through this like kind of proxy battle, right? We're not taking on Russia directly. We're trying to just fund Ukraine to sort of hope that they drain enough Russian resources that at some point they give up or something. I think that probably tacitly how you would explain the idea here, that that is somehow a better promotion of democracy than some other avenues that we could do with, with that same amount of money. And then maybe lastly, I think we probably should be careful, (laughs) clearly haven't learned our lessons in terms of who we are promoting and what kind of democracies we're promoting. So Zelensky, for all, you know, his touting of of being this sort of surefire democracy came into power through effectively a coup that was supported by the United States when he replaced you know who you can argue is a russian puppet on the other side but somebody who was ostensibly ostensibly one of my favorite words (laughs) democratically elected um but was obviously you know far more aligned with russia than he was with the united states and you i mean seeing Zelensky remove uh ukrainian generals who who he doesn't like um so it's it's possible that we are now looking to further arm one yes but you know perhaps dem- democracy in name but we know about the c- corruption issues in Ukraine in order to to say okay well we're standing up to this other autocrat and corrupt
person in Putin who we also don't like at all, or you know, who we're saying we don't like and we don't mind the Ukrainian form of it. I mean, when we look at Afghanistan before the American invasion, who, what did we do? We were giving money to the Taliban, right? Like, <laughs> that's what we were doing to fight the Soviets. So we have, you know, our own history and our own precedent with these kinds of um, tactics that also haven't worked out. Um, and I think where we're at today, something, you, you know, you mentioned the 300,000 Russians, Russian troops killed. Zelensky came out and said something like, what do you say, 10,000 10, or 30,000 Ukrainian troops killed since um, since the start of the war. I think the U.S. puts the number closer to 60 or 70. So combined, almost half a million people killed because of this war. The $60 billion goes explicitly to continuing it, and the idea being that Russia at some point will give up. I think that there are other foreign policy options that we are not considering because this one is both the most, like we know how to do this. This is very easy for us to do. Some of the other things in in terms of, yes, we don't, the other option, the other path is uncharted for us. And so this is the path of least resistance, continue to spend militarily, give money give bun give guns give bombs um but to to what end okay good question and i want to come back to that at the end but just to address a couple of your arguments here the argument being made by president trump and by his followers in the republican party that you acknowledged far more eloquently essentially was saying that like we all made a commitment as part of NATO to spend 2% of our budget on our defense system to contribute to NATO and very few countries do. I would have to pull up exactly how many, but the United States obviously spends far more than that, but the vast majority of NATO countries don't do that. I think it's a, it's a completely legitimate thing of like, we all kind of agreed here, you have slacked on your obligations. It's not fair that we have to pick up the slack. The other hand is like, I'm not sure that this is the time to make this principled stand. I think to me, that's like an abdication of US leadership. It's saying that, well, you haven't done it, so it's not our responsibility, you guys deal with it. And the United States has been a, a leader, the leader in the, of the free world for 80 years at this point, and to just stand back and say, well, we don't want it to do it because essentially like America first here, let, let Europe take care of their own wars, that just doesn't feel like a, a viable 21st century option to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that that argument is entirely unsound. I think it relies on two tenuous beliefs. One, that somehow Russia would expand its campaign beyond Ukraine, which we're already saying is draining it of resources at an unprecedented clip, and somehow move on to other places, and two, that somehow the armies of Europe are just entirely incompetent and incapable of mounting any of their own defense, despite having a combined GDP, you know, 10x that of Russia, and already spending, you know, as a, if we just even just look at the countries of the European Union, significantly more on their militaries than Russia is that somehow all of a sudden 
the U.S. pulling back means that Europe is basically left, you know, standing out there naked and afraid. Yeah, sure. I'm sure this. I think there's probably a, a fair middle ground there. But I just think the, the the Trump approach. Maybe you're not advocating for this. Is to pretty much step back and say like this is your problem. Why don't you deal with it? I mean, he he explicitly encouraged Russia to invade NATO countries who weren't spending their their two percent that they agreed to before. And again, I'm not saying that you're saying that, but I think that's kind of the logical end of that argument. Well, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, like you're going to get what comes to you. And I do feel like that would be an abdication of U.S. leadership. Uh, I think that the thing your, your point about the military not bringing democracy to places is well taken I, I agree that we haven't been able to do that effectively but what we did effectively throughout the 20th century is this idea of containment of protecting democracies and we're not in this case we're not bringing democracy to Afghanistan or trying to bring it to Vietnam what we're trying to do is protect democracies from the an invasion of of a dictator essentially and i i i understand the comparison to us arming the taliban to fight the soviet union and maybe it's my naive on my part to think that this is not the same but while i acknowledge that ukraine is a very far from perfect democracy and has huge issues with corruption in in i think it's worth acknowledging that and saying that this is not a, a perfect leader like kind of country that we're giving money to it's also i don't think quite the Taliban here, like neither, like, so I think your point about how we get caught into these quagmires in places like Afghanistan or Vietnam, this isn't really the same. This is actually a, a step back from that in a lot of ways where we're not sending American soldiers to, to die in these, these places. We're, we're sending money and you could argue that we shouldn't, obviously you're arguing we shouldn't be spending this money, but this is, I don't think those comparisons are really apt. And I think the other historical comparison you made was like Germany post-World War One. we don't want Russia's economy to suffer that same fate. Again, I don't disagree with that, but this is not post the war, right? We're currently very much in the war. And I would hope that if this war ends and, and Russia is defeated, that we don't follow the, this, the same, we fall into the same trap that we did in the Treaty of Versailles and tried to make these impossible reparations for Russia to pay. But trying to weaken Russian economy while they're in the process of conducting this war, I think is completely appropriate. Like you have to make Putin suffer at home. You have to make it hurt. And like, why, why where have the protests in Russia come from? They've come from families, largely like women whose husbands, whose sons have been sent off to have been drafted into the army and, and sent off to this front unprepared, un unequipped to die. They're the ones that have been uh, you know, leading the protests against Putin in Russia. And so how, how do you try to make it hurt? You try to make it hurt economically. And unfortunately, you try to make it hurt. Like, you know, where does it where does it actually hurt when people go to die? That's when people start really. That's what ended up U.S. involvement in Vietnam, right? Is people being like, I'm sick of sending my sons over to, to die in this war that really is nothing. I have no idea what we're doing here. And again, I think like from a humanitarian aspect that's tragic to say but he's the one that started the war right like and so if, then if is he and his people are going to have to suffer then yeah and so like my final point there is i don't think that 60 billion dollars is going to win the war far from it but the whole point is allowing ukraine to hold on to make it continue to hurt for russia so i i think there are a couple of issues there. Well, I mean, one, I, 
maybe going back to some of your initial arguments of how many how many casualties Russia has. Do you, do you have a guess of how many casualties the Soviet Union had during World War II relative oh, to ours? They had like 20 million or something like that. It 20, was... I think more than 25 million okay, yeah, casualties. Yeah. So I think culturally, we're probably it's probably worth recognizing that you know, we came into World War II late to the game. We came into World War I very late to the game. We don't necessarily have that same appreciation for what a country like Russia is, is willing to do in these circumstances. Like, their entire strategy, and it's very eerily similar to what they're doing now, is throw bodies at the front. It's, it's kind of absurd. That being said, it's... It's honest to to me that the idea that all of like our like the resistance in Ukraine would fold were it not for our it would just take on a different tact right like the again Taliban didn't have the resources that we had you know the uh, other Afghanis that f resisted our invasion of Afghanistan didn't have the resources that we're trying to give to Ukraine. They made it very, very difficult for us. And eventually we gave up and we left. So there, I mean, that, that, and, that, and that's not to say that you're not, that you're, that I don't believe that Russia should pay a price, that I don't think that morally this is not a war worth fighting. I, what I do think is that this amount of money is not material, that all it's going to do is extend the bloodshed, that something like a negotiated peace where Russia somehow actually took over all of Ukraine would not end peacefully and would not be sustainable, um, and that there are kind of other ways that we could be supporting Ukraine or being anti-Russia than this. Like, we still are very much skirting around the fact that, at least on its face, Putin's reasoning for going into Ukraine was that Ukraine was going to become a NATO ally and that, you know, American troops and or military bases would then be within a stone's throw of Moscow, right? He has never been interested in dealing with Ukraine in terms of any type of settlement on the on the issue of how do we wind down this war. And so I th I think there is a lot of kind of pomp and circumstance about being the army the arsenal of democracy and you know how do we beat our chests enough so that everyone knows not to mess with us and also like a practical understanding of yeah i mean the biggest benefit that we're getting is just maintaining this war like russia is expending resources and that's good for us right the same way that you know no one was no one like Russia or Iran or China were not openly running to the defense of countries that we were invading in the Middle East because they were like, have at it. You're going to waste a lot of money there. I think that the, the, 
that our best bet is is similar. I mean, I I think unfortunately that one argument that I don't quite buy is that our military industrial complex benefits us, but giving Russia a reason to continue to develop their military rather than focus on other internal problems is all is not equally going to be is not equally going to be beneficial to them right they are by creating these boogeymen outside of our own countries you know the u.s for russia russia for the u.s we then remove all of like the infighting like the the rise of people like Navalny in Russia because they have, well, A, you know, they can use this kind of time to expand that kind of domestic military rule. And then B, you now have a unify, you have a unifying enemy. If it's, if it's true for us, it's true for them as well. And I think this is the notion that we continue to miss in terms of Still, we have to have an end game with this, and we we don't have that. So, what what is your end game here? I mean, my end game, yeah. I mean, and this is the this is one where I'm gonna be attacked for being a Neville Chamberlain piece <laughs> in our time. But there, you know, I'm I'm much more of the view that keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That are notion of trying to isolate Russia, isolate North Korea, isolate China has only one forced them in all into each other's arms. So now they're all, you know, <laughs> Russia gets its drones from Iran, it gets missiles from North Korea, right? Like it it is forming tighter alliances with our enemies than it has ever had um in the past. And it also just serves to give us no leverage over how they act within the global community while at the same time we're continually having to go it alone in part because we've demonstrated that we don't care and we will go it alone but in order to meaningfully address some of the sort of the value issues that we feel like all people across the globe should be able to uh, believe in what we believe in we haven't been able to demonstrate that yeah everyone is on board with like let's let's get russia on this right like you you mentioned how our sanctions haven't been nearly as economically harmful well in yeah in part because china is buying the oil but also one of our big allies in India is buying a ton of the oil, right? So we haven't been able to figure out how to organize democracies, plural, like the capital D democracies of the world, to view this A as a threat as we do, and B, to figure out what to do and how to do this somewhat together. And yeah, so I mean, the end game is that we have to rethink our foreign policy strategy and some of that may be trying to understand what is Vladimir Putin's endgame. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess like I started this debate by saying that I'm as, as forcefully as I've made this case, I don't 
a lot of this reflects my personal beliefs, but not totally. And I think one of the good things is is that it's not just a rubber stamp that we are actually having a discussion and debate in the public square about why we should or should not give Ukraine aid. And while I don't think it's being articulated in the best way by the Trump Republicans, I think you've acknowledged, and I would acknowledge too, that I think they have a lot of really valid points that we should be engaging with in a, in a good faith, intellectual manner. And having a conversation like this, you, you wish it would kind of happen on a debate stage. Like I would have loved, and this is another thing that we had talked about before, like the, the vanishing of primaries. Like I would have loved Nikki Haley and Donald Trump to get on stage and have, have an actual debate about this and kind of put forth two competing visions for what we should do here. It's probably in a far better way than we would do right here, but perhaps not. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, so I think that's good. Like we, you in particular have long lamented what happened after September 11th and like the, the authorization to go in Afghanistan, which was, I think, 98 to nothing in the Senate and 420 to one in the House. Like, there was no actual debate. And your, your point has always been, like, if everyone's on board with something, maybe we should take a step back and, and reconsider what we're doing. And so at least here we are having this debate. Again, I don't like how it's been held hostage by House Republicans. Uh, I will share one story that I read coming out of the Munich Security Conference uh, a week or two ago, where the... Ukraine was to four four U.S. senators who had attended this conference and come back and all told the same story that one of the presentations by a Ukrainian minister was telling a story of how in this like muddy trench on the eastern front while Russian artillery shells are falling nearby there is a Ukrainian soldier on his cell phone scrolling to see updates of whether or not the U.S. House like passed the this this bill, um, which is kind of crazy, like how globally intertwined we all are. But I think to, to go back to your point, like where you left off, where it's just like, let's, there perhaps are better ways to utilize different levers of foreign policy to bring this conflict to a less bloody end. And I think you've pointed out India as someone that we should really be able to engage with critically. And China is someone that we're I feel like there's been some sort of rapprochement with China, and you, you would hope that that continues, that we aren't forced into a situation where we have to confront China militarily because we have more open ties than we had with Russia going into this. So I, I agree with all of that. I do think that like U.S. leadership still needs to matter. And for all President Trump's like valid points of isolationism and America first. And again, I we pointed to like George Washington's farewell address of saying, let's stay out of foreign entanglements. It's just, That's just not realistic to me in a 21st century world to pull back and say like, hey, this isn't our problem. We're not going to deal with it. You guys in Europe, if you want to deal with it, you step up to it. And whether it was under the Trump administration of like, or hanging our Kurdish allies out to dry, or in the Biden disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, even though we both agreed it was good, kind of in principle, the way it was done, we hung out all of our Afghanistan, al Afghani allies who, who then were, you know, they were kind of left to fend for themselves after helping us for so long. Like if the United States says it's going to do something, then you should step up in the word, the United States word should matter. And the, the fact that it, it doesn't, it's just kind of this mess right now, I think is kind of embarrassing for us on the world stage. That doesn't mean that we should do this to save embarrassment or to your point that, that you know, sometimes we get stuck in this like uh, sand pit, right? Like where, like uh, you know, you're just sand pit's not the right word. What am I like? Quicksand, right? Where you just like slowly, you just sink in more and more over the course of years, like we have in Vietnam or Afghanistan. But as I mentioned earlier, I do think those are 
those situations are distinguishable. And so that, that's where I would come back to, where for all my arguments that I put forth in terms of how this is good for the United States, militarily, economically, whatever, the United States still needs to be a leader of the free world. And our, our word our, has to have weight and matter. And the way we're currently handling this, I don't think is a good reflection on what I view the United States role in the world. Yeah, that that is a. I think that's a good summary or summation that we are looking for a way to have our influence over this conflict and to basically stake our side, which I don't think is the problem. I think more the issue is is that we're not really doing it, right? Like we're thinking about adding $60 billion to the Ukrainian coffers, as you, as you pointed out, not in direct, not necessarily in direct cash, but like in some, some, some ways, military, uh, right. New weapon systems, whatever in, in, in not so many words, we're basically just giving them the weapons to fight this battle that, to some degree, we are saying they're fighting this for us. They're fighting this for yeah. democracy. Yeah. So if that is the claim, then we should be doing more. If that's not really true, if there are some just sort of some sep- you know, some selfish motivations, we can kind of continue to line the pockets of the Northrop Grumman's, the Lockheed Martins, and the Raytheons of the world without really sticking our necks out, right? No new U.S. troops are involved in this. Then I think is where it gets a little bit trickier. And so this is the like, are we making a moral stand or are we not? If we are, this isn't, this doesn't feel like the way to do it. If we're not, do we have other avenues that we can still exert influence that don't just include perpetuating this war. I mean, I think part of the idea is that if we dry, if this money dries up, Ukraine will have to surrender at some point. They're losing ground. Russia's continue, you know, making advances that they were never able to make at the start of this war. And at some point, they're just going to have to give up. But then what happens? I think we're are, you know, I think it was nice to say that this is very different from Vietnam and Afghanistan. Well, this is also different from World War II. And people want to make that comparison of Putin to Hitler, but I think that's a flawed one as well. And that there are many different ways that this could go. And we still have to remember that the United States has basically, you know, we spend 40% of the entire world spending on on our on our military right like whatever the total amount of money that the entire world spends on all of their militaries we spend about 40 percent of that despite having you know 330 350 million people on a 9 billion person planet so i think we still need to remember we're always or you know for a long time we're going to be the big dog in the fight but we can throw our weight around in different ways that don't just include 
the same old thing, which has kind of been our foreign policy for the last like 40 years, just kind of pump and dump money and hope and, and sort of hope for the best or not or not. Cause it's not really clear that we have an end game that, that means that, that this conflict like resolves itself in Russia turns around and goes home with its tail between its legs and all of the autocracies of the world learn their lesson and nobody ever tries anything like this again. I think that that is just the great if that was right. True, that, that's yeah. the that's the pipe dream. Yeah. But as much as I'm naive potentially in thinking that there's an opportunity for some kind of a negotiated settlement that doesn't mean that in five years time, you know, Ukraine falls and then so does Poland or whatever. I think it's also naive to believe that there's a a quick military solution to this that then leaves us so much better off than where we are today. The, the challenges are complex and the solutions I think will have to be complex as well. Absolutely. And that's why we said at the start that this is there's a lot of gray area in between these things and you would hope that Whoever is leading the United States, certainly President Biden for the next eight months here, uh, and then potentially a, a President Biden or President Trump or Haley or whomever, um, can articulate what, what's, the, what's the purpose of this. I don't think President Biden has done a good enough job because not only to convince House Republicans, but also just to convince the greater United States. I feel like if, if there was more outcry, like this kind of groundswell of support for this this aid, then it would be passed. The, the fact that it hasn't been passed is telling me that people in the United States aren't sold on what, what we should be doing here. And I think because it's so murky, because it hasn't been clearly defined, it has felt a little bit like we're saying, you know, we throw this economic argument, we throw this military argument, we throw this moral argument. And if, if it's all of those things, it's kind of none of those things. And um, yeah, I, I think that's a really fair point of if we're going to do this, we should be able to articulate really clearly why we're doing it and why it's good. I tried to do that as best I could. I'm not sure that I totally succeeded, but I think, well, it, it's a fair place to leave it. I I enjoy engaging in this, and while I do, just now say it again. Like I do think we should continue to be funding Ukraine. I think you've you've made a lot of really valid points that I I think are worth considering. Yeah, I think these discussions always get me to expand my view and sort of my myopic view of probably what. The, the solution is to to include that nuance so i appreciate you as always anything else yeah, i'll maybe just add one final thought before uh we wrap today which is my uh my uncle my dad's younger brother passed away um a week ago today um he was 64 he had a protracted battle with cancer a Lyomyosarcoma, which apparently is a very rare form of the disease. Um, and I got to go back to South Carolina, um, which is where he lived with my aunt um, and visit with her and my two cousins, his children. And we talked a lot about his life um, the work he did at the university. He was a director of um, this electron microscopy lab at the University of South Carolina. 
and kind of his whole journey through the U.S. getting a master's degree in Illinois and then getting a Ph.D. in New Hampshire. And I think what struck me was that once we covered kind of the the high-level bio talking points, we all sort of just reverted to the little things that made him him so he was a bit ocd and my in my youth when i ever whenever i visit my aunt and uncle i always picture him kind of like at the dishwasher just i mean at the sink just washing every dish or rewashing dishes that had been washed by other people and then listening to my cousins tell um stories of the few phrases that he liked to use a lot he had a a passion for a five dollar burrito that 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 was available on mondays um that that he shared fondly that they shared fondly with me that memory um and so it is i don't know it is uh it's always hard to lose someone definitely to lose someone young um he's only 64 but sort of remembering impacts that we can have on people and on each other and, you know, to not take these things for granted. Um, and I will always remember beyond those things. He just had a, a deep, deep belly laugh that, uh, that I can still hear today. So it was, um, it was, that was a, a tough loss for us and our family, but, if it does anything, gives you that that kind of perspective and how lucky we are. We get to do this. This is fun. I don't take this for granted, and I appreciate you, buddy. So with that, until next time. Yeah, I guess I'll just briefly say, obviously, condolences to you, to your dad, to uh, your cousins, the entire family. Uh, my interactions with your uncle were brief, but certainly my kind of the me- memory I have of him is at your wedding, the, really the night before your wedding, uh, just almost like holding court outside at that table. And uh, he was just so dynamic. And you told me after, like, oh, that's the one that's been, I was like, oh, I, I would have had no idea the way he was talking. And uh, so I, I always have, I will always have positive memories of him. And uh, yeah, cer- certainly sad, but I, I appreciate the, the reflection. And uh, I too feel very, very lucky to do this, Ricky. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, friend. It it makes it, I don't know if easier is not the right, right word, but, um, you know, you have a community to pick you up after things like this, and it that, that means a lot, too. So, all right. All right. Well, speaking of community, we uh, value everyone that listens and, and reaches out and gives us feedback and keeps us feeling like we're part of a community doing this. So uh, not only do I appreciate you, but we appreciate everyone out there who listens. That's for sure. All right, man, for real this time. (laughs) Until next time. See ya. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day no agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, 
morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share. Opinions we share an American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head and folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz